everyone. Welcome to Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Khan, founder of Being Patient. I'm delighted to announce today that we have Lisa Genova. A lot of you know she's a New York Times best-selling author of Still Alice and also a neuroscientist. Lisa and I recently met at a conference in Miami where she was talking about the art of storytelling in particular um, for neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease. She's covered a number of topics um, uh, through a, a series of books um, from everything aside from Alzheimer's, from ALS to Huntington's disease, and we're really happy to have her with us today. Welcome, Lisa, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Deborah. It's such a pleasure to see you again. So you have, um, I would say, a unique quality that you really, you're a neuroscientist, you understand the science um, behind neurodegenerative diseases, but you're also a storyteller, which is really interesting because um, as we've noted in Still Alice, you so beautifully captured the emotional side of what it's like uh, to live with Alzheimer's. In, from your perspective, why is that so important? Oh, thank you so much. I think that I think as human beings, we're designed to understand through story. So actually, my favorite example of this right now is as ALS. So my most recent book is Every Note Played. It's about ALS. And millions of us dumped buckets of ice water over our heads. Right. Did you do this? I, I was part of the ice bucket challenge. Absolutely. We all did it. Right, so we did this, and so we're we're familiar with the letters ALS, and maybe we know a little bit about Stephen Hawking. Like maybe we have some vague familiarity with it in some way, but in doing the Ice Bucket Challenge, did you feel anything about ALS? Probably not, right? You did the Ice Bucket Challenge, you posted it to Facebook, you checked your likes, maybe you donated some money, which is wonderful, but you didn't actually feel anything. So you might know something about ALS, but it doesn't cause you to um, have any empathy. So I could have sympathy for those people with ALS. I could think, oh, poor them, that's awful. And they stay otherized. They stay different from me, I'm safely different than them, and our worlds don't overlap. They are excluded from my community. But through story, we really can move from sympathy to empathy. And empathy is feeling with someone. It's the imaginative leap I make when I imagine and feel what it's like to be you. And in doing that, it just it's a world of difference. So if I want to understand something like Alzheimer's, and, and people are so afraid of Alzheimer's, right? Um, we we're just talking about how it's, you know, I, I couldn't get still else published at first because everyone who was even marginally interested thought, well, you know, I just think the general public's not gonna to wanna to read about this. Alzheimer's is too depressing, it's too scary. You're a neuroscientist, write a nonfiction book about Alzheimer's. Well, the problem is for a nonfiction book, that's homework and gonna stay very intellectual and very few people are gonna read that. But if I can write a story about Alzheimer's, that invites everyone in and then we can begin to humanize and become familiar with these these diseases that that scare us and so then they're not just diseases they're about the people living with diseases 
And one of the things I love that you captured so well in Still Alice is you've you've said, you know, Alzheimer's doesn't destroy your EQ. You still have emotional sensitivities. I've seen that in my own mom where she's still right on cue um, assessing certain um, emotional circumstances. And I think, wow, that's incredible. But what you've um, and there's there's one scene in the movie that I love where um, her daughter's reading her a passage and she understands it's about love. And that's so powerful. So from from the neuroscientist in you, why is what do we know about this disease where it's really unable to destroy emotion? Right. And so just even without Alzheimer's, just think about this for a minute. So the example I use with folks is like, do you ever get in an argument with someone in the morning? Like say you get in an argument with your spouse or your child and you're still mad by mid afternoon, but you can't remember what you thought about. So, or the flip of that, like say you had a beautiful exchange in the morning and you just still feel great the rest of the day. So we often forget the language of what was said but the emotional content lingers. The emotional memory outlasts what was said, even without Alzheimer's. And so with Alzheimer's, it doesn't just attack the whole brain uniformly and indiscriminately. It attacks specific parts. And so it goes after the hippocampus first. And that's a structure that's essential for the formation of new memories. So this is why people with Alzheimer's, their first symptoms are forgetting what you just said or repeating themselves. Um, and attacks language centers. You have trouble finding the right words and you have difficulty speaking over time. It attacks the prefrontal cortex. And so you have problems with decision making and logical thinking and problem solving. It disrupts a lot of the brain, but it doesn't disrupt your ability to feel emotion. So you can still feel loved, lonely, sad upset. So, and if you know anyone with Alzheimer's, you know these things to be true, right? You know when your loved one feels at peace and loved. You know when they feel agitated and scared. Um, you don't need memory to have emotions. Like, think back to when you were raising your babies, right? Your baby, your, your three-month-old baby, your five-month-old baby doesn't have memories beyond five months. If, you know, if it, it can't remember much at this point, it just isn't there. And yet your baby can feel loved and scared. And so, so these persist. And so I tell folks, like I get this a lot. So someone will say, well, my dad's in a nursing home and he's got Alzheimer's and I don't visit him anymore. And I really, I do feel awful about this, but the justification that, that this, this person will give is like, well, he doesn't know who I am anymore. And he won't even remember that I was there five minutes after I'm, I'm gone. So I just, you know, what's the point? And the point is similar in that you're right. He's not going to remember what you said in that visit. But he will feel what you offer him. If you bring love into the room, he will feel loved. And that's worth it. And that feeling of being loved can outlast the memory of who, who was there and what happened. I have a, a dear friend whose mom is in the later stage of Alzheimer's disease. And one of the things they used to do together is meditate. And she goes um, and every time she visits her, her mom, she meditates. And it's it, I just thought that was so beautiful. You know, it was it was a connection they had prior to the Alzheimer's that she was able to continue afterwards. Um, what 
as a neuroscientist, I've wondered how, I mean, you must have done copious amounts of research um, on things they don't teach you when you are going through medical school. Um, what, how has that helped you um, from the scientific perspective to really understand um, the emotion behind um, Alzheimer's? Yeah, so, you know, my, my grandmother had Alzheimer's and I was 28 when she was diagnosed. This is 20 years ago now. Um, and I came at understanding her Alzheimer's through the lens of neuroscience. So I learned everything I could about the molecular neurobiology and the clinical presentation and the, the clinical management of the disease and how to be a caregiver. And, and, and that was all helpful to a point, um, but it lacked, it lacked empathy. So I lacked empathy. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't understand what it felt like to be her. And so I didn't know how to stay connected to my grandmother when she had this. And so the research that I do for all of my books goes beyond the textbooks and the scientific literature, and even the conversations with the physicians and the scientists. I really dig in and get to know the people who are living with this. Um, so for Still Alice, I came to know 27 people living with early stage or young onset Alzheimer's who could still communicate what it feels like to have it. And I was in touch with them every day for the year and a half that I was writing this book. We're in touch um, through email, a daily one-hour chat, live chat online, um, by phone and in person when possible. So um, that's how I figure out what it feels like, is I, I really get to know folks who have it. And the conversations that we have, it's such a privilege for me, because here are folks who really are sort of in the most vulnerable place in their lives, and we're not we're not just shooting the shit, you know, we're not like, Oh, how's the weather? How are your kids? Everybody's good. Good. It's, we're really talking about stuff that matters and it's, it's why, you know, what are you going to do with the time you've got and how are you going to matter and how will you still be seen and heard? What do you hope for? What are you afraid of? What's your death going to look like? Like these are conversations that we don't have normally. And so, getting at what it feels like, getting at the emotion of what it's like to go through this, to wake up in the morning and look next to you and not recognize the woman in your bed for 10 minutes. And then it clicks back in that that's your wife of the past 35 years. Um, to lose your job and your, you know, your identity that, along with it, to have people be afraid of you. Um, so we talk about all of that. And that's also so captured so well in Still Alice um, when her daughter says to her, what does it feel like? And she thanks her daughter because it, there's this appreciation, I think, from the person with Alzheimer's perspective to really just take the time to really understand, you know, what's going on instead of isolation, which a lot of people feel, I think, when they when, um, you know, upon diagnosis and living with this disease. We're getting some questions in that I, I want to address. Um, and actually, this one is, is appropriate um, uh, to continue the discussion we're having. Um, here, a question from a viewer saying, what's the best way to put yourself in the shoes of someone with Alzheimer's? How did you get into the headspace of someone dealing with a diagnosis? I mean, you, you touched a little bit about that, but, but what about really putting yourself um, in, in looking at the disease from their perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I did, I did shadow neurologists at Mass General Hospital in Boston, and I sat in on neuropsych testing. I was there in the room when folks were diagnosed. Um, and then spent 
continue to spend time with them again for about a year and a half. So, so understanding what they go through, like just taking the time. I think that, you know, for, for diseases and conditions like Alzheimer's, ALS, Huntington's, autism, I think that for a lot of us, they tend to intimidate us or scare us a little, or we're worried that we're going to say the wrong thing, or we don't really, we're not familiar with it. And we don't like to be unfamiliar with something because it makes us uncomfortable. And so I would rather just look the other way and not deal with what you've got. And so for most of us, we don't take the time to sit with someone like, like Lydia did and, and still Alice and say, mom, what does it feel like? And to sit there and be with someone and let them explain what it's like to have Alzheimer's and not be afraid of that answer. Um, I think that when we look the other way because we're too afraid of how that's going to make us uncomfortable, you're right. We, we isolate and alienate and unintentionally marginalize all of these folks who live with this. And so 50 million people in the world have Alzheimer's. And if, if, I, can't de if I can't deal with what you've got, I've just turned my back on 50 million people. And so in addition to not having a cure and having to live with Alzheimer's, which is an incredibly difficult journey, you now layer on top of that feeling ex you're excluded from belonging and, and you disappear from community. And so one of the, one of the biggest hopes I have in my, with my writing is that these stories can help um, people become familiar with the unfamiliar and so people with Alzheimer's and these other diseases and mental illnesses don't feel as, as marginalized. So where are you today? I mean, you know, there's a lot going on in research. Um, you know, we don't have the magic pill. We may never have that magic pill. It may be a combination of treatments. Um, but what is your assessment um, as a neuroscientist? Has research come uh, a long way in the last decade? It has, although it doesn't feel like it. So we don't we don't have any new drugs since Aricept and Nemenda. So Aricept and Nemenda are the two drugs approved to treat Alzheimer's, but they don't actually treat the disease. They just help you with your ability to remember and think for a while while you still have enough neurons working. But they don't actually stop or affect the disease progress at all. And so Lots of drug companies have invested billions of dollars in trying to come up with this magic pill. You can imagine the holy grail of market potential here. There's 5.7 million Americans with Alzheimer's, and the baby boomers are aging into like the highest risk bracket for getting this disease. Age is the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's. So we've got this bolus of population moving into you know getting Alzheimer's. It's right now one in three at 85 fast approaching one and two. So if we get to live to be 85, half of us are gonna have Alzheimer's. They call it the silver tsunami, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so a lot of people, a lot of brilliant people have been investing their time and money in this and nothing has come of it. And yet I'm not discouraged because here, a couple of things have gone on. One is that the technology that we needed to, to really understand and, and crack the code for Alzheimer's wasn't available to us 20 years ago. And I like to tell folks, think about even if you had a cell phone in 2000, what did it look like? 
and what could you do with that cell phone versus what you can do now, right? So you and I were just talking how you're in Hong Kong and I'm in Boston and we're video conferencing and it's super easy, breezy and amazing. And we do these things now without thinking. Technology has exponentially grown in the last 20 years and that has also happened in terms of the tools that we can use in um, scientific research. So the tools 20 years ago to do Alzheimer's research um, were crude compared to what they are now, and they were very expensive to use, so only a few scientists could be in the game. Now, they're, the, the tools are exquisite and precise and exactly what we need to look at the molecular causes of the disease, and they're very cheap and fast to use. So lots of scientists can, can be at this table. The other thing that has gone on over the past many years is that for the clinical trials for the drugs that have been in um, development, these drugs have been targeting um, a protein called amyloid beta. And this is a protein that begins to build up and form plaques in your in your brain, especially in your hippocampus to begin with, and that if they, if they accumulate to a certain point, it will trigger trigger a molecular cascade that then causes the clinical symptoms of Alzheimer's. So the, the, these drug companies have recruited people with Alzheimer's into clinical trials to see if their drugs work, and they've all failed. And part of the problem we think is that maybe the drugs would have, could have worked if the people in those trials had been asymptomatic. So people who will eventually get Alzheimer's but don't have it yet, because here's the deal. These drugs are targeting amyloid. But amyloid had to have accumulated to the point where you're now symptomatic. It takes about 15 to 20 years for amyloid to accumulate to a point where you now have symptoms of forgetting and, and memory loss and problems with thinking that are diagnosable for Alzheimer's. But before that, you don't have any symptoms. So I, li I liken it to this. Think of amyloid as a lit match. And that's not going to cause Alzheimer's on its own. But when it reaches the tipping point, that match will set fire to your brain. So your brain will be ablaze with Alzheimer's. And now you have the symptoms of Alzheimer's. So people in these clinical trials had their brains ablaze with Alzheimer's. They were symptomatic. And we were giving them a drug that blows out the match. It was too late, right? So, so these clinical trials weren't designed properly. And it's challenging because... Like, who wants to be in that clinical trial, right? How do you find yeah. those folks? So, like, my grandmother died of Alzheimer's when she was in her 80s. I'm 48, and, you know, I should be in a clinical trial for Alzheimer's. But Absolutely. How do, you, how do you design that? Because I'm not going to – if I get Alzheimer's, it's not going to be for a long time. So these trials are tricky to design. I have a lot of confidence that a lot of people from a lot of different disciplines are coming at this now. Bill yeah. Gates has thrown his hat in the ring in terms of investing. There's now an X prize for Alzheimer's that's launching this year that I've been senior advisor to. Um, we've, we're inviting scientists from across disciplines, so it's not just neuroscientists. We're saying, hey, data hackers, hey, physicists, um, imaging experts, anyone who might have expertise that, that could crack this code is, is getting in on the game. So I think we're gonna see an advancement soon.
Yeah, and it's it's interesting to witness that shift where, you know, um, maybe 15, 10, 20 years ago, it was focused really on exactly what you're talking about. How do we cure this? And I've noted a lot more, and we're covering it at Being Patient, is focused on that pre-symptomatic brain health stage. It's like, where, how do we uh, either kick the can down the road or employ prevention strategies um, yeah. through behavior, through you know behavior modification, lifestyle, um, yeah. in order to really prevent that tipping point that you're talking about? Right. So, and this isn't so far fetched. So right. So most of, we're so used to thinking of our health from the neck down in terms of being able to have an influence on it. So we're all comfortable with heart health, right? You go to your annual physical and you get your blood pressure taken and you get blood drawn and you get your cholesterol checked and you might be told like, okay, well you need to go on a statin, but forgetting even forgetting medication, like if you're pre-diabetic, change your diet. If you've got high cholesterol, if you're at risk for heart disease, exercise, Mediterranean diet, decrease your stress levels, these can all prevent you from getting a heart attack 30 years from now. And so you might wear the little Fitbit device, count your steps, like we're all used to thinking about how do we stay healthy from the neck down? Well, it turns out we can also work on staying healthy from the neck up. There are, there are ways that we can prevent and reduce our risk of Alzheimer's um, through, through changes in behavior. And so they're very similar to heart health. It's Mediterranean diet, it's aerobic exercise, um, both have been shown to decrease your risk of Alzheimer's by a third. Sleep is super important. You need um, slow wave deep sleep and REM sleep for optimal memory, but especially for Alzheimer's, you really need that slow wave deep sleep because during that phase of sleep, cells called glial cells in your brain, they're like the janitors of your brain. They clear away the metabolic debris that accumulated while you were in the business of being awake. And one of the things that clears away is amyloid beta. So if you're not getting enough sleep, that amyloid beta starts to accumulate. And that's exactly what you don't want to happen. So um, sleep, diet, exercise, reducing stress, um, because stress uh, impacts sleep. It impacts your what you eat. And so these things all feed on themselves. And they're not super sexy. This isn't high tech. But... The, these lifestyle um, habits and ways of being really do do work. Well, I, I have um, checked the list except for sleep. Sleep is my one pain point. <laughs> I think that was alarming. Those when those studies came out, every everyone I know was like, "Oh no, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I'm doomed." Yeah. Um, so would you, I, I mean, I'm fascinated because I think we're getting to a point in science and research where. Um, we're beginning to realize how uh, you can almost draw, draw a Venn diagram around, you know, I mean, when, when, if you're diabetic, you're, you're, you, you increase your chances of dementia, how these systems are related. So in your opinion, do you think the future is maybe precision medicine where we're monitoring our A1C levels? You know, how, are we, are we pre-diabetic? Um, everything to get a more comprehensive snapshot of our health in order to to know how to prevent and and try to control the biomarkers for that matter absolutely um you know i think that and a prevention is going to be key and it's our involvement and ownership of our health 
which is really pretty exciting. And I think people will grab onto that um, pretty readily. Again, it's like, you know, with anything, like you don't want to treat cancer at stage four. You want to get it at stage one or prevent it. Heart disease, you don't want to be treating when you're being rushed to the emergency room. You want to prevent it really early. So same with something like Alzheimer's. And so the more information we have about, well, what are the constellation of biomarkers and risk factors that that would alert us to like, hey, here's some, some, you have elevated levels of X and you wanna bring those down. And then you know what you can do to bring them down. You, if you have feedback that shows like, okay, you know, I, I've been working on this for a week and the levels are coming down, you get that feedback and it works. So, um, you know, we've all inherited our, our, our DNA from mom and dad and you can't do anything about what you've inherited but you can influence how those genes are expressed. Um, and so we're learning more and more about how, um, how we live interacts with the genes we've inherited. And so I think that you're right. I think in the future we're gonna know like, okay, it's kind of like, you know, the future of 23andMe will be more of like, well, here are the genes, that the constellation of genes that you have that we know influence um, the likelihood of getting Alzheimer's. And some of those are protective and some of those increase your risk. And here are the things you can do to tip the scale toward protective. Um, so yeah, we're gonna see that. I think it's actually kind of exciting. Absolutely. Okay, we have another question um, from a viewer saying, do you see ethical issues in involving asymptomatic people in clinical trials to test experimental drugs when public access to reports and journals about the results of prior research is costly and therefore limited? Um, I, okay, so no, I don't have a problem with that because how are we going to get to, you know, you want the cure for Alzheimer's, how are we going to get to it? Um, and so, you know, there are a lot of families out there right now. So for example, there's a study going on called the Diane study. This is the dominantly inherited autosomal um, dominant version of, of Alzheimer's, which it's, it's the kind of Alzheimer's I gave Alice and still Alice. So it's if if mom or dad has Alzheimer's, every kid has a 50-50 shot of inheriting a, the gene that will cause Alzheimer's. So this only occurs in a very small percentage of all Alzheimer's. But what's great about, you know, what's fortunate about identifying these families who have this is that we can take the drugs that we're developing to see if we can prevent Alzheimer's and give it to the folks who are asymptomatic. Who, who may get Alzheimer's um, or who are who are um, who will will get Alzheimer's because they've inherited the gene. So in terms of um, folks who may or may not have inherited a gene and you're asymptomatic, these are the, you know I think it's it's gonna take you know citizen scientists. It's gonna take citizens who want the cure for this disease, who have had grandparents who've had this, who know of people who've had it. Um, to get in clinical trials and and get involved in in being part of the progress that's going to lead us to that cure. You can't do it in mice. We need people. Uh, someone else is asking how, um, how, this is a good question and actually a problem, but how do you monitor beta amyloid before you have sim symptoms? So you're not going to today because it's too expensive and too invasive. And so actually this is one of the... Um, one of the 
factors we've identified as necessary toward getting to a preventative medicine or cure for Alzheimer's is being with, with XPRIZE, we are launching a, a competition to ask people to find an earlier diagnostic that is less invasive and less expensive. So right now, if you wanted to know your amyloid levels, there's two ways to do it. Um, one is you get injected with a radioactive labeled, it's called Pittsburgh Compound B. It's amyloid beta that's radio labeled, um, and it's or it's a radio label that's going to attach to amyloid beta. And so it'll attach to amyloid beta in your brain, and it's a PET scan. So you go in and you get imaged. So there aren't there aren't a lot of PET scans in the world. I think there's 2,000 in the whole world, and it's very expensive. And they're expensive, yeah. They're reimbursed by insurance. So it'll cost you $2,000 to find that out. Um, or you could get a lumbar puncture, um, which means they're going to stick a needle in your spine and, and draw out cerebral spinal fluid and see if you've got amyloid beta there. Um, also invasive, painful, not reimbursed by insurance. So you can find out that these numbers tell us maybe a little bit, but not a lot, because again, we if you're over 40, you have elevated levels of amyloid beta. It takes 15 to 20 years for this stuff to accumulate to a point where you'll notice your very first symptoms. So we probably all have some levels of it that fluctuate depending on, this is a dynamic process, right? This isn't like your brain isn't this like hunk of a blob of tissue in your skull that doesn't do anything. It changes every day. And so depending on your sleep habits and your eating habits and your stress and your exercise, your amyloid beta levels will, will, will move accordingly. Um, so it's, you know, until you reach that, you know, get close to that tipping point, um, it's not useful information. Like I wouldn't go and have it done for me because it's not going to give yeah. me anything useful. I just have to assume that I need to try to live a healthy lifestyle, a preventative lifestyle now so that when I'm in my seventies and eighties, I'll reap the benefits. Well, interestingly enough, I met here in Hong Kong with um, a team of researchers from Chinese University, and what they're they're getting good results, still preliminary in animal studies, but to use MRI to detect um, plaque in the brain, which would change um, the face of of you know what we know at an earlier stage, um, because MRI everybody has an MRI machine, right? right? Um, but still, again, early stages. I mean, it will take some time before they find out. But it's interesting to see the diagnostics ch shift as well as we look into the, the pre-symptomatic stage. Yeah. So, Lisa, I have to ask you um, before we go about um, it's such a compelling story to me that you as a neuroscientist pushed forward with Still Alice after people were like, no, don't publish, we don't wanna publish it, it's too scary a topic. Um, but it really shows us that, you know, it, they were so wrong. So tell us a little bit about what it took to get Still Alice out there. And I also wanna hear about, you know, the, 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 eventually the walk down the red carpet at the Oscars. How amazing was that? It was beyond amazing. So yeah, none of this was planned and it's, it's still, you know, I still um, giggle about it and I, I can hear the sound of my grandmother's laugh at times just cause all of this is so wild. Um, so, so I sent out a hundred query letters when I finished still Alice to literary agents and I was rejected by all of them but four. 
Um, I, I still haven't heard back from one of them. Um, the others who wanted to read the manuscript all declined it. They all thought it was too scary and depressing and not, you know, there wasn't going to be enough of a readership for a novel about a woman with Alzheimer's. So at that point, I either had to go back to doing scientific research or strategy consulting for biotech and pharmaceutical companies or self-publish it. So I self-published it in the summer of 2007 and literally sold it from the trunk of my car, giving copies to people saying, like, if you're on a book club would you, and you like this, will you please like spread the word, um, post something about it online? This was really before Facebook. It was certainly before Instagram and Twitter. So there was like MySpace and um, Shelfari, and, but Amazon was there. So I said, please post a review. Um, so it was a lot of like just peddling the book like in person, um, not very efficient. But eventually, I was giving myself a year. And um, eventually, like a lot of magical things happened, but eventually, word of mouth and, and um, and the recommendation of uh, another author named Julia Fox Garrison led me to an agent who um, read it and agreed to represent it, and she sold it to Simon Schuster. So Simon Schuster then publishes it, and I get a film agent. And when they published it, it like debuted at number five on the New York Times list. It's been translated into thirty-seven languages. Like it went, that in itself was just a crazy, amazing story of guardrail to guardrail. Now I've got a film agent, and he says to me, um, well, I've got Hallmark and Lifetime interested. And I said, absolutely not. And he gets on the phone with me, and he's like, look, this is the best shot you're going to get. Like, you've got a drama starring a 50-year-old woman with Alzheimer's. He says, Hollywood is never going to make that film. And I said, I told him I was going to take my chances because Part of what I realized I wanted to do, especially once I was doing the research for this book and I came to know all these people with Alzheimer's, I recognized that I had both an opportunity and a responsibility to give these people a face and a voice and that these folks aren't included in what gets talked about when people are brave enough to talk about Alzheimer's because everybody pictures end stage and they're thinking about dying and nobody was talking about living with Alzheimer's. What does that look like and feel like? And so I was trying to create a global conversation about a topic nobody wanted to talk about. And I knew that Lifetime and Hallmark were not going to do it. Um, so I, I said no to those opportunities and waited and waited. And eventually these two young, relatively inexperienced producers from London um, offered to option the book. Um, I took a chance on them and said yes. They um, hired two um, not very well-known uh, filmmakers, uh, Richard Glatzer and Wash Westmoreland, to write the script and direct the film. And uh, shortly after they came on board, we got Julianne Moore. And we how, got wait, how did that happen? Like, wow, that's talk about a home run. <laughs> I mean, my God. So when I met. Um, Lex Lutzis and James Brown, they're the producers from London. I met them in London. I was on book tour for Left Neglected. And they said, well, who would, who do you want for Alice? And I said, I want Julianne Moore. And they said, oh my God, we do too. And months before that, I'd written in my journal, 
I was in Australia on book tour and I wrote my journal. I still have it, just a blank page. There's nothing else on it except it says Julianne Moore for Still Alice. Um, so years later, I show her this. And I said, look, I, I manifested you. <laughs> but um, how it actually happened is that Richard and Wash are friends with um, Todd Haynes. And Todd Haynes has directed Julianne Moore a number of times. And so they asked for the introduction. Um, and she Did read Does she have a connection? Does she have a connection to Alzheimer's? I mean, she really just nailed it so well playing no, Alice. Not personally, but man, did she do her research. So like, I really, I feel like I connect with her in this way because we both come at our jobs in a very sort of serious minded, um, responsible way. So she, she went to a neurologist and took all of the testing as if she were concerned about having Alzheimer's. She, um, was mentored by a woman named Sandy Oltz, who was 50 years old at the time um, and had Alzheimer's. So she was in touch with her regularly. Um, she was in touch with the Alzheimer's Association, um, watched lots and lots of documentary films. Like she really did her homework. Um, yeah. yeah. So it was, I, it was amazing. So the, the red carpet, the, the Oscars, that whole thing was bananas. So. <laughs> We finished, we shot in 2000, March of 2014. The world premiere was two weeks after they finished editing in September of 2014. They released it, um, limited release in December just so that it could get nominated. So Julianne Moore got nominated and won Best Actress for every single award that season. So Amazing. I got to go to a lot of it, um, including the Oscars. And it was just, it was mind blowing and amazing and surreal and wonderful. It's such a wonderful story of persistence, right? It's like, you know, you will run into people all the time who will tell you what you can't do. And you really went with your gut. And that's an amazing, amazing story to see where, where it ended up. So what do we look for um, um, with Lisa Genova in the future? Oh, thanks. So, um, so I've written five novels. And right now I'm doing a little bit of a departure. I'm writing a nonfiction book about memory. So because I've been talking as an advocate for Alzheimer's and, and helping people better understand how to live with this disease for 10 years, part of what I've noticed that comes up is that there's a lot of concern and curiosity and confusion about memory. So what's normal and what's not? And why do I, you know, I walk into the room and I can't remember why I came in here. Does that mean I'm getting Alzheimer's and, and forgetting what you plan to do, right? Like, oh, tomorrow I got to remember to call my mother. And then I don't call my mother like 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 all uh, that tip of the tongue. Oh, oh, the actor. He's um, I know who he is. Like You can't come up with his name, but you can see him and you know who he's married to. And you know, all the movies. And where is it? So um, I'm writing a nonfiction book about memory. It's a narrative form. So it should be very um, accessible, easy, bite sized information for you to like better understand what's going on in your head with respect to memory and forgetting. And then the uh, yeah, as, as you, ex as you mentioned that list, I'm like, check, check, check every <laughs> single one. Right. So I'll be really interested. So to I think that. we can all relate. Um, and then the next novel that I'll get to as soon as I finish that is a, about a woman with bipolar. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So I take it you're really focused full time now on the writing. Oh, yeah. 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 Writing and speaking. So I do a lot of speaking. Um, so between those two and three kids and, and life, that's all I got room for. 
You are a dynamo and thank you so much for joining us. Um, and you know, um, Lisa obviously has a website, um, Lisa, Genova.com. If you want to, um, see, um, explore the other books she's read or keep abreast of, um, what she's doing. I, I, I take it. That's the best place to go, Lisa. Yeah, absolutely. You can also follow me on Facebook or Instagram. Great. And thanks so much for joining us. Um, a really dynamic, um, interesting conversation. We're really appreciative of your time. Uh, thank you, Deborah. It's been fun.